This podcast covers serious crimes and subject matter that may be distressing to some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, and welcome to our third episode of True Crime on Our Minds. I'm Dawn, and with me is my co-host and lovely sister. Hello, I'm Debbie. So how's your week been going? Getting excited for your trip? Eh, it was fine. Very much looking forward to my trip. I just still have so much to do. It's freaking me out a little. I just need to take a deep breath and relax. And especially when I'm away, I need to just focus on relaxing, something I have a very hard time doing. Um, don't I know that? But I'm kind of the same way. I'm making lists in my mind all the time and thinking of things that did this get done? I need to do this, but just relax. I mean, how often do you go to Italy besides one other time before? Yeah, apparently every other year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this week, we're going to be covering a truly horrific story. It happened here in my neck of the woods, Memphis, Tennessee. This is about the murder of six people, four adults and two children, and the attempted murder of three more children. It was referred to in the news reports as the Leicester Street Massacre because that's the name of the street where the house was and where the crime took place. It was the worst mass murder in Memphis history. Uh, yes, this is not an episode for the faint of heart, especially because it involves the brutal murder of two children and the attempt attacks on three others. So this episode may not be for everyone. Yes. So Dawn, let's get started with our Factor Crap segment about our featured city of Memphis. Are you ready? Yes, my sweet sister, who often has facts, but is usually full of crap. Let's hear what you got. Hit me. Okay. Well, Valney the lion who roars at the beginning of the old MGM movies. You remember that, right? Lion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Lived at the Memphis Zoo until his death in 1944. I say that is a fact. And you would be right. This is a fact. I had never heard this one, and I thought it was very interesting. So Elvis isn't the only king to live in Memphis. <laughs> well, and speaking of Elvis, who died on my birthday, I thought for sure that was going to be your fact and crap. And I knew that one because, you know, he died at that hospital that you worked at. But if you uh, ever saw Men in Black, actually, Elvis isn't dead. He just went home. <laughs> Did you ever well, see that movie? <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, being that it's Elvis week, it's a whole week event here. I thought that one would be too well known. This was a, this was one I didn't even know. So you got my reference, you know, because lions are kings of the jungle and Elvis was the king of rock and roll. I thought it was so witty, but my family did not find it as, as funny as I did. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. And also, this is weird that Elvis died on my birthday, which was August 16th. And I'm a Leo, which is a lion. And that goes back to the lion. So it's like a whole trifecta. Yeah, it's just like a, a circle. Well, when I was talking to mom, I said something about, well, August 16th was the day Elvis died. And she said, well, I always know it is Dawn's birthday. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, but I'm in Memphis. So, you know, people come from all over the world and they do a vigil. They start the night before. And um, I mean, it's just crazy that uh, how long has it been 40 something years and they um they still i mean it was just like he died yesterday yeah it's pretty crazy well i do think you're clever and witty but let's go ahead and move on into the more serious part of our episode so as debbie mentioned this crime took place in memphis tennessee in an area of town known as binghampton on march 2nd 2008 debbie i think it's important to give listeners a little bit more background on the area 
I think so, too. So Binghampton is a neighborhood located at the convergence of Midtown and North Memphis. It was named after W.H. Bingham, an Irish immigrant, hotelier, planter, magistrate, politician, and entrepreneur, it's a lot of hats to wear, who founded the town in 1893. One of the major employers in their early years was a freight car factory that made wooden boxcars. The area was annexed by Memphis City in 1919. After the Sam Cooper Expressway was built and traffic was diverted around the area, the neighborhood began to suffer blight. Most of the housing is low-income and blue-collar. Recently, the area has been undergoing a revitalization. Abandoned buildings are being repurposed, and large murals have been painted on the sides of the warehouses and the water tower. thought you'd find that interesting, being how you're such an artist. Oh, I love the murals and urban art that are popping up all over the place. And it's nice to see that they stay in great condition, that they're not graffitied over. Yes, and they make for great Instagram posts. Binghampton holds a biannual art walk and a new dedicated bike path has been built to connect with the larger Memphis Green Line, which runs from Shelby Farms in northeast Memphis to west Memphis, Arkansas two of my favorite places to go have a cocktail. The Cove and Wiseacre Brewery are located off Broad Street in Binghampton. And I know um, some people will take um, the bike path and they stop at different bars along the way and have drinks as they're riding their bikes. It's so. kind of like a bike, bike hop, <laughs> a like bike a beer hop. <laughs> it's like a bike and drink thing. So that, that would be pretty cool. I could handle the drink. I don't know about the biking that far, but definitely can handle the drinking part. Cecil Dotson, a maintenance man in an apartment complex in Memphis, had been renting a house at 722 Lester Street for five or six months. Also living in the house were his fiance Marissa Williams, who was 27, and their four children, Cecil Jr., known as CJ, who was nine, Cedric, five, Samario, four, and Sanaya, who was just two months old. Cecil also had two other children from previous relationships who stayed with him on weekends, Sierra, 12, and Cecil, the second, who was two. Wow, that is a lot of names beginning with C. But just like our family growing up, all the girls are named, uh, their names begin with D's. Even our dogs, our female dogs names began with D's. Yes, we should have named our podcast the Double D's, but then we aren't that type of podcast. And I'm certainly not a Double D, at least not in that context. But that is a good name for our production company. So I think I need to get that registered ASAP. (laughs) Cecil 30 was the third child of Priscilla Shaw and Jesse Dotson. They were married in 1972 when Priscilla was 15 and Jesse was 19. Soon after, they had their first child, a daughter, Nicole. Jesse joined the Army and was stationed in Florida, where the couple's second child, Jesse Jr., was born. Three years later, Jesse Sr. was discharged from the Army and the family moved back to Memphis, where a third child, Cecil, was born. Moving forward, to keep the two Jessies straight, Jesse Jr. will be referred to as Jess Jr., which is what his family called him. Priscilla and Jesse had a volatile relationship. They argued frequently, and Jesse was physically abusive toward his wife, which the children witnessed. One day, Jesse Sr. came home to find his wife and the children were gone. Priscilla didn't contact him for four or five months, and the children didn't know what had happened to their father. Good for her. I mean, that really had to have been tough, and I think that's a reason why a lot of women don't get out of that situation. Priscilla moved the family frequently and had very little money. She oftentimes was not at home, and Nicole was left to care for her brother. Priscilla also kept the food locked up so the children couldn't get it. 
On trips to visit their grandmother, Cecil and Junior would steal money from her purse so that they would have food. They were punished for this and eventually were banned from their grandmother's home. I think that's just so sad. That is sad. I mean, stealing money, you know, maybe for drugs or other reasons, but stealing it for food. I mean, I know times are tough. You really need to ration, but it's just a sad situation all around. So Junior dropped out of school in the eighth grade. And in 1990, he was charged with disorderly conduct for threatening his mother. One month later, he punched a 13-year-old boy in the face and told him he would put him in the hospital if the boy didn't bring him $25 the next day. In the fall of 1991, he was again arrested for disorderly conduct for threatening his mother and his brother, breaking down doors and punching holes in the wall. Then in 1992, Junior was charged with disorderly conduct due to an argument with a neighbor. His family feared him and his mother said she had no control over him. Junior rarely worked. And then in 1994, at the age of 19, he was charged with the murder of Hal Ralph Cox. Cox had bought what he thought was drugs from Junior, but it turned out to just be soap shavings instead. When Cox confronted him about the fake drugs, Junior shot him and stole $20. He was convicted of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 18 years in prison, but was paroled after just 14 years. While in prison, Dotson joined the Kitchen Crips gang. Cecil had his own run-in with the law and in 1995 went to prison for four years for drug charges and aggravated assault. While there, he also participated in the assault of another inmate. In January 2008, he was charged with aggravated robbery. A police report stated that a man was standing at a bus stop when a van nearly hit him. He yelled at the driver who pulled over, got out with gun in hand, and demanded the man's wallet. The victim described the van and Cecil, who was later pulled over and arrested. Cecil was also a member of a gang called the Gangster Disciples and was described by a fellow gang member as outspoken and arrogant. After Junior was paroled in August of 2007, he moved in with his sister Nicole and began working as a painter with his father. As a condition of his parole, he would be sent back to jail to finish his sentence if he was caught with illegal drugs, weapons, or was involved in any illegal activity. Prison had not softened him at all, and he was very angry that his mother was the only one to visit him while he was in prison and that she'd only visited him once. In January of 2008, as Junior was leaving a card game, he grabbed Cecil's leather jacket and began to leave with it. When Cecil tried to stop him, he pulled out a semi-automatic pistol and challenged him. Cecil reported the incident, but Junior was never charged. And that's kind of, I mean, that's a violation of his parole right there. I was surprised that they didn't come in you know, arrest him or put him back in prison. Yeah, I'm surprised too. I'm surprised that Cecil actually called the police on him. It sounds like that Cecil and Junior had a very antagonistic relationship also. I mean, I know siblings fight, but this, uh, you, oh, and really? fought, uh, yeah, you and <laughs> I fought. You and I fought a lot. chased me into the bathroom with a butcher knife. No, siblings don't fight. <laughs> hey, at least it wasn't a semi-automatic pistol, okay? <laughs> well, true, true. On March 1st, 2008, Cecil picked up Junior and took him to his house to watch the University of Memphis Tigers basketball game. Also there were Cecil and Junior's father, Jesse Sr., their half-brother William Waddell, a.k.a. Fat, Cecil's fiancée Marissa, and five of Cecil's children. At around 6 or 6.30 that evening, Jesse Sr. left because they couldn't get the game on Cecil's TV since he didn't have cable. He said when he left, Cecil was outside getting the grill ready to barbecue. Fat said he left around 11 p.m. 
I love that nickname, but I would not be happy if you nicknamed me fat. Erica Smith, who was the mother of Cecil II, the two-year-old of Cecil Dotson, stated that Cecil and Junior came by her apartment at around 12.30 a.m. on March 2nd. With them was a friend of Cecil's named Hollis Seals, and he was 33, and Hollis's girlfriend, Shindri Roberson, 22. After the four left her apartment, Erica called Cecil at 1.15 and spoke with him briefly. She called him again at 1.30, but he didn't answer. However, when she called him a third time at 2 a.m., he did answer. And Erica said during that time, she could hear Junior in the background arguing with Cecil and cursing. Cecil said he would call her back, but he never did. She knew the two brothers had been drinking that day and arguing most of the night. And I don't think it was unusual for them to be arguing. Sunday morning, Jesse went to Nicole's apartment to pick up his son, Junior, for work. They had a job that they had planned to finish that day. Nicole said that Junior wasn't there and that she didn't know where he was. Jesse told her to let Junior know that if he wanted to keep his job, he'd better contact his father. Later that evening, Junior called his father and said that he had gotten into a fight with his girlfriend, Sheila Jones, and that she had taken his phone, but did not provide an explanation for why he had missed work. Meanwhile, on Sunday, Erica Smith continued in her efforts to try and reach Cecil. She wanted to pick up her son and the three were to attend church together. At 3 p.m., she went to the Leicester Street house since she had not been able to reach him. She blew her horn, but nobody came outside. She then went up and knocked on the storm door. She noticed that the wooden door was cracked open and the radio was playing, but she didn't hear any of the children. She left without entering the house. That must have been kind of eerie or scary, you know, knowing that there's five children in the house and you don't hear a single one of them. Erica continued to call the rest of the day and into the next day to no avail. On Monday, she went to where Cecil worked as an apartment maintenance man and found out that he had not shown up for work that day. This really concerned her because Cecil never missed work. She then began to call Cecil's family members, who also reported that they had been unable to reach him on Sunday. Cecil's daughter, Sierra, had been trying to reach her father on March 2nd because it was her 13th birthday, and he had promised that they would do something fun together to celebrate. That said that he tried to reach Cecil to see if he wanted to go to dinner with him and Junior Sunday night, but Cecil never answered his calls. That said, when Erica called concerned that she hadn't heard from Cecil, he told her to call the police. She called the police and then drove back to Leicester Street and waited outside for them to arrive. That same Monday, Jesse picked up Junior for work just before 8 a.m., but they had to stop work at 11 because it was raining. During their time together, Junior never mentioned anything about Cecil or his family. Later that day, he did tell his father that Nicole wanted them to drive over to check on Cecil uh, because Erica had been calling and she was worried that she couldn't get a hold of them and she felt like something was wrong. They drove over to the house and found the police there and saw the crime scene tape. Officer Randall Davis responded to the call to check on the welfare of residents at 722 Leicester Street. When he approached the house, he noted that the front door was partially open. He could see a person's foot on the floor. Upon entering the house, he said it smelled like dead bodies. I don't even want to imagine what that smells like. They say once you smell it, you never forget. He found the body of an adult male lying beside a television. As he rounded the corner, he saw three more adult bodies beside a couch. All of the victims were deceased and later identified as Cecil, his fiancée Marissa Williams, Hollis Seals, and his girlfriend Shindri Roberson. Officer Davis and two others moved on down the hallway to clear the house while other officers stayed and secured the door. They first entered the bathroom where they found a male child in the bathtub with a four and a half inch knife blade protruding from his head. I can't even imagine. Mm. 
The officers thought that the child was dead, but when they saw his eyes twitch, they informed the paramedics to attend to him. The child would later be identified as Cecil Jr. or CJ. And we'll post a picture of uh, CJ on our Facebook page. Officer Davis then continued down the hallway to a bedroom on the left where he saw a small child who was deceased. He was identified as two-year-old Cecil II, Erica's son. Officer Davis moved to another bedroom where he found two more children, later identified as Samario and Cedric. Samario was deceased from what was later determined to be blunt force trauma to his head and stab wounds to his chest, which pierced his lung. Cedric also suffered multiple stab wounds, but he was still alive. In the last bedroom, rescuers found two-month-old Sanaya with multiple stab wounds, but miraculously, she was also still alive. When Sanaya was carried out, the officers asked Erica Smith if she was the baby's mother, and she replied no. She could see the baby had its neck cut. That is um, pretty incredible that those children survived over 24 hours between when they were injured and when they were found. It's just a, a true miracle that they survived considering the extent of their injuries. I know. Thank God. Firefighter and paramedic Daniel Moore said that it was obvious from the bloody scene that all four adults had been deceased for a while, describing the blood as definitely old. And Debbie, I read that when Moore and another firefighter entered the bathroom to attend to CJ, he turned his head and that's when they saw the blade embedded in his skull. Moore stated, and I quote, it absolutely is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Once the surviving children were transported to the hospital, investigators, not knowing who the perpetrator was, decided to hold back information on the children's identities and ensure that they were in a guarded location. No one, including family, was allowed to go anywhere near the children. Deputy Director of Memphis Police Department, Tony Armstrong, who was a lieutenant with the Homicide Bureau, assigned Lieutenant Walter Davidson to head up the investigation. When Armstrong and Davidson arrived at the house on Lester Street, Sergeant Anthony Mullins provided them with an overview of the crime scene. He then left and returned later that night with a search warrant so that officers could begin to process the scene and collect evidence. It wouldn't have occurred to me that the police would need a search or uh, search warrant before they could process the scene, given the nature of the crime. I mean, I don't ever recall hearing or seeing anything like that on a TV show, either true crime or those like CSI. So I found that pretty interesting. I know it's not something I would have thought of, but maybe because they were renting the house and they didn't own the property. I don't know. But it seems like if someplace a murder's been committed, that would give you carte blanche to, to look at whatever you wanted. <laughs> As the investigators began to process the scene, they found evidence that had been staged. All of the adult victims had multiple gunshot wounds, and with the exception of seals, at least one gunshot to the leg. The guns, a 9mm and a 380 caliber, were not found. However, spent bullets were found on the sofa cushions, on the floor under Cecil's body and the sofa, and numerous other places in their small and cluttered living room. Officers also discovered a couple of shell casings in the living room, as well as 16 in a zip bag on the sofa under a jacket. They figured the perp must have intended to take the casings with him. Sergeant Mullins thought that the victim's bodies had been moved after they were shot. Cecil was found kneeling with his torso resting on the sofa. He had sustained numerous gunshots to his chest, which would not have been possible in that position, you know, if he was his back was to him. There was also a large bag of marijuana in Cecil's hand, which he most likely would have dropped when being shot. He also had been shot in the face and it looked like a pillow had been used, I guess, to do we know was shot through with a pillow. Autopsy revealed that he'd been shot eight times, once in the head, neck, chest, and right leg, and four times in the left leg. 
Police also found a 12-gauge shotgun in the living room on top of a pile of clothes. Blood on the shotgun was determined to belong to two-month-old Sanaya. It was obvious the shotgun had been placed there by the perp after the shooting since the baby was found in another part of the house. Shunde Roberson's body was also speculated to have been staged. Shot four times in the leg, she was found with her back against the sofa and her legs outstretched. There was little blood around her body. However, there was a large stain on a nearby uh, sofa cushion. Her shirt was pulled up above her breasts and her pants were pulled down below her knees. A plastic baggie with a few rocks of crack was found to have been placed near the outer part of her vagina. The bullet holes in her pants matched the location of the wounds on her legs, leading officers to believe her pants were pulled up at the time she was shot. Several hairs were located on the lower part of her body, but given the filthy condition of the house, it was determined that they could have easily been picked up when she was moved. Marissa Williams was found on the floor slumped over Roberson. Her legs were placed across Roberson's. Again, it was suspected that her body had been positioned after the shooting. She was shot five times, once each in the head, chest, abdomen, right leg, and left leg. Hollis Seal's body was near the door that connected the living room and the kitchen. He had been shot three times, once in the mouth and twice in the chest. His pants had been pulled down below his knees and his wallet was on the floor next to his body. It was believed that Seals was killed in the area he was found. However, a void and a blood stain on the floor indicated that his body had been moved after being shot, most likely when his pants were pulled down. The injuries that the children had sustained were determined to have been caused by knives and or wooden boards found in the home. The handles had been broken off the knives. They suspected that the perpetrator was familiar with the home and the weapons he used. The attacks on the children were especially brutal. They had multiple stab wounds to the chest and head and sustained blunt force trauma. We can't even stomach going over all the forensic details, so we are just going to spare you. However, we will post a link to the court report to Facebook and in the show notes for those who are interested in reading more about the crime scene investigation. It made me sick just reading the report, and I got teary-eyed just thinking how those poor babies were made to suffer. It was just awful. So the perpetrator spent a considerable amount of time in the house after the assaults. He moved the bodies and altered clothing, picked up shell casings, removed knife handles. He must have felt pretty comfortable that even if the shots had been heard by neighbors, the police were not going to be called. Yeah, when police interviewed the neighbors, they indicated that they heard shots, but it was not unusual in that part of the neighborhood. They even said that on holidays, Cecil would fire his his gun into the air. This knowledge, at least in my opinion, also indicated that the perpetrator, given the amount of time spent in the house after the assaults, was familiar with that neighborhood. Police began to interview family and known associates of the victims. When Cecil's brother Jr. was interviewed, he told police that after his father and Fat left Cecil's house, he had hung around. Later, he, Cecil, and Seals went over to an apartment in the area of Highland and Spotswood avenues, which belonged to Willie Boyd Hill, a.k.a. Frank. Seals went into the apartment and Cecil stepped out of the car to talk to somebody who had come outside. They left 30 minutes later and picked up Shindri Roberson, Seals' girlfriend. The group then went to purchase marijuana at another apartment and as they were leaving, ran into Erica Smith in the parking lot. Smith, as we said earlier, is the mother of Cecil's son, Cecil II. From there, they made a couple more stops before Junior was dropped off at his girlfriend 
conference house between 2.15 and 2.30 in the morning. When asked whether Cecil had any enemies, Junior stated that on February 14th, Cecil and Frank had had an argument. Cecil, Smith, Frank, and Frank's girlfriend had gone to her apartment after a night of drinking. Cecil slapped Smith, which prompted Frank's girlfriend to call the police. When the officers arrived, Cecil told them that there was marijuana in the apartment, which Frank also stayed at. Now, Cecil and Frank were both members of the Gangster Disciples, and members were forbidden to call the police on each other. Because Cecil broke this rule, Frank wrote a violation, and the gang was supposed to have a meeting or kind of like a trial to determine Cecil's guilt, but Cecil never showed up. Okay, wait a minute. So Cecil was in trouble for telling the police about the marijuana, but Frank wasn't in trouble? I mean, it was his girlfriend that called the police in the first place, right? Yeah, I don't know. These, um, you know, I was reading some about the gangs and the gang hierarchies, and I mean, it sounds kind of, you know, like a homegrown version of the mob, but I guess since it wasn't Frank, it didn't count. But still, you're right. If you have this code, it seems that Frank shouldn't have allowed his girlfriend to call the police on Cecil. Well, I can see how Cecil would call BS on that. So during his interview, Junior gave police a very thorough description of the gun Cecil had in the house, including the sawed-off shotgun and 9mm, which Junior said belonged to Williams. He also said that his half-brother, Fat, asked Frank to call around to see if anyone in the gangster disciples knew who had committed the murders. Junior continued to indicate he believed the gang was involved. Early on, police did not think it was gang-related crime. Sergeant Mullins said that, in his experience, investigating over 100 gang-related crimes, gang members would have been armed with weapons, gone in, done the job, and left. They would not have relied on finding weapons in the house, or would they have hung around to stage the scene. Also, the fact that women and children were killed and knives and boards were used led the investigators to doubt the crime was committed by gang members. However, after Junior's interview, investigators began talking to known gangster disciple members and others who indicated that they had useful information. They were told that Cecil had stolen $300,000 from a drug dealer and possibly $50,000 in drug money from Doc Holliday, who's the governor of the Gangster Disciples. Upon hearing they were being linked to murders of women and children, the gang became angry and reportedly threatened Junior's mother and Nicole, who became so terrified they went to the police. A marked police car was stationed outside of the residence where Nicole, her children, and Junior were staying. This freaked Junior out, and he was described as being agitated and frantic believing the police were there to arrest him for the Leicester Street murders. He held a gun to his head, stating he was not going to go back to prison for something he didn't do. Police were able to talk him down, stating they were there to protect the family, not to arrest him. They were moved to a safe house under protective custody while police continued their investigation. And I understand that there was also a reward put up for information? Yes, um, $81,000, with $50,000 of that coming from the governor of Tennessee. Wow, that's quite a bit of money, considering the last episode, it was, what, twenty, twenty-three thousand dollars $23,000? Yeah, I guess, you know, the, the murder of children really spurred this investigation. And also that it was the worst mass murder Memphis had seen. Yeah, I mean, I guess that does uh, elevate it a bit. So while all this is going on, there are still three children fighting for survival in the hospital. CJ had trauma and swelling to his forehead, a large laceration from the top of his head to his forehead, and his skull had been fractured and driven inward. He also sustained numerous other lacerations all over his body. Cedric had injuries consistent with being beaten with a hard object, 
including fractures to his face, a fractured nose, and a skull fracture with bruising of the back of his brain. Sanaya had severe head trauma, with the right side of her skull having been crushed with a blunt object. A large cut on her scalp exposed bone, and her brain was bruised. She also had several stab wounds. Wow, it's just amazing they survived. A turn in the investigation came on March 7th, just five days after the murders. Investigators were alerted that CJ was awake and lucid. During their interview with him, CJ said Uncle Junior was responsible, uh, meaning Jesse Jr. Investigators arrested Junior, who gave the same account of events as he had during his interview on March 4th. One additional detail was that when he and Cecil had gone to purchase marijuana, Cecil referred to Junior as his B bleep A beep brother. We don't want an explicit rating, so hopefully you know what we're trying to say. Investigators said that Junior frowned when he told them this. Deputy Director Armstrong stated that when he asked Junior questions, he would simply nod or shake his head, but he seemed tense, like he was hiding something. He was able to get Junior to confirm that only he was referred to as Junior in the family, and anyone who talked about Junior was referring to him. Junior also stated that no one else in the family looked like him. Well, so unwittingly, he's basically giving credibility to CJ's identification of the perpetrator. Deputy Director Armstrong played the tape of CJ's statement, at which time Junior told a different story of what happened. He said he and his brother went somewhere to get guns and began arguing. The argument continued all the way back to the apartment where it escalated. Junior said when Cecil reached for a shotgun, he just began shooting. He attacked the children because they were witnesses. After the attack, he left on CJ's yellow bike, which was later found in the shed at his girlfriend's house. So leading up to the trial, Junior recanted his confession, stating that he was coerced by the police. He returned to his original story that the murders were committed by members of the gangster disciples, but stated that he was at the house hiding under a bed during the assaults. The trial was held in Memphis, but because of the publicity, the jury was made up of Nashville residents. I want to mention that he also confessed to his mother, too, that he had um, committed this crime. So it wasn't just Tony Armstrong that he confessed to, but he also confessed to his mother. And and she believed him. When he confessed to her, she actually, she she knew. She yeah, knew she that he knew. was telling her and the she truth. she asked him, why the babies? And he said, because they were witnesses. So that's pretty horrible to hear that. Your son has killed your other son and your grandchildren. It's just awful. During the trial, CJ testified that while watching television in his sister's room, he heard gunshots. He described seeing his uncle shoot his father and Shinji Roberson. He went back to his sister's room where Junior came in and slashed his neck. Cecil II, who was also in the room, began to cry. CJ tried to get to a phone in the hallway, but Junior caught up with him. He asked his uncle if he could use the bathroom, and in there, Junior tried to stab him in the chest with a kitchen knife. In an attempt to block the blows, the knife went into his head instead. Marissa Williams was alive at this time and had come to the bathroom to beg Junior not to kill her. Shortly after, he heard what he described as a huge thud. Cedric also testified at trial and named Junior as his attacker. And I saw some kind of conflicting about whether CJ really did see his mom or if, you know, just the trauma of it all, he was um, visioning his mom. I mean, it is a lot for an adult to go through this and provide testimony, much less child. So um, still, he did indicate that 
Jr. was the perpetrator. There were many witnesses who provided testimony, and you can read all of that in the court document of the trial, which, as we said, we will post a link to on Facebook and in the show notes. A lot of it goes into greater detail regarding Cecil's involvement with the gangster disciples and their alleged involvement in the massacre. There are also detailed descriptions of the injuries of each victim, the autopsies, and the thorough testimony from CJ and Cedric. At one point during the trial, prosecutor Ray Lapone said he's only in his 30s and he's taken seven lives. Junior reportedly clapped after this statement. There were often times when Junior was seen laughing and smiling during the trial. The trial lasted for two weeks and it only took 90 minutes for the jury to return a guilty verdict on six counts of premeditated first-degree murder for the deaths of Cecil, Williams, Seals, Roberson, Samario, and Cecil II. He was also convicted on three counts of attempted premeditated first-degree murder for the attacks on CJ, Cedric, and Sanaya. During the penalty phase, Junior's defense attorneys argued that his learning disabilities, history of neglect by his mother, and background growing up on the streets among thugs as reasons he should receive life in prison and not the death penalty. In the end, the jury imposed the death penalty for all six of Junior's first-degree murder convictions. He also received three 40-year sentences for the attempted murder convictions, which were to be served consecutively with each other and the death penalty. Upon review, the court of criminal appeals affirmed the convictions. State law required that the Supreme Court also review the case. In October 2014, the Supreme Court upheld the death sentence rulings, finding that the attacks were, and I quote, some of the most horrendous ever committed in Tennessee. They scheduled his execution for November 17, 2015. Nearly four years later, he's still on death row. And just a few additional notes involving this case. In November of 2008, Erica Smith, who is the mother of one of the murder victims, Cecil II, she was in a car accident and broke her neck, but she did survive. The three surviving children, CJ, Cedric, and Sanaya, went to live with their maternal grandmother, Ida Anderson. The children received counseling and are doing well. CJ is now 20. Cedric is 16 and Sanaya is 11. A new family now lives in the house at 722 Leicester Street. Mm, I don't think I could do that. No. And I found that interesting because sometimes, especially when there's been so many murders committed, they'll just tear the property down. Junior, sitting on death row, is engaged to a woman from Horn Lake, Mississippi. She had started communicating with him through letters while he was in county lockup. And that's all we have for this week. We are finally on iTunes. Yay! Yay! So you can download and listen to us on all our podcatchers. We hope you will take a moment to subscribe and give us five stars. You can find us on Facebook at True Crime Minds and on our website at truecrimeminds.com. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by clicking on the Patreon link on our website. We are also interested to know if you have a crime you would like us to research or one that has incurred in your neck of the woods. You can submit your requests on Facebook or through the episode request form on our website. And we will be back next week with our Fact is Stranger Than Fiction episode. We have a really good one for you. Yes, it's going to be good. Until then, make good choices. Keep your head on a swivel. And stay safe. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of True Crime on Our Minds. Check out our Facebook page and website at truecrimeminds.com where you can see photos and other information related to episodes and submit recommendations on other crimes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and provide us with a rating. You can also find us on Patreon and sign up to get extra content and support the show.